0: Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. Democracy Now! is funded by you, not by the weapons manufacturers when we cover war or gun violence, not by the oil, gas, coal or nuclear companies when we cover the climate catastrophe. If you believe in the power of independent media, please make your donation today of $5 or $10 or $5 or $10 a month or any amount at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference, especially because generous donors are matching your contribution dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From New York, this is
1: Democracy Now!, One of his aides who was there at the meeting then said to me, Rudy doesn't talk about pardons. You have to talk to me and he's going to ask you for two million dollars. And I laughed and I said, I don't have two million dollars. I said, are you out of your mind?
0: The Justice Department is facing calls to investigate Donald Trump's attorney, former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, for allegedly plotting to sell presidential pardons for two million dollars and split the money with Trump. The allegations are part of an explosive lawsuit filed by a former associate who says she was sexually assaulted and harassed by Giuliani. We'll speak to CIA whistleblower John Kiriakou, who was imprisoned after exposing the U.S. torture program. He says an aide to Giuliani told him a pardon would cost him $2 million. Then, a UN human rights panel is calling on the United States to finally release Abu Sabaydah, who was repeatedly tortured at CIA black sites and Guantanamo.
2: He's locked up in Guantanamo without charges, not because he did anything wrong, but in fact because he didn't do anything wrong. It's the CIA who wrongly tortured him. And when they found out they were wrong, they're covering it up by detaining him, incommunicado, forever.
0: We'll speak with one of Abu Zubaydah's lawyers and look at Abu Zubaydah's shocking illustrations that show torture techniques used on him, including waterboarding, sleep deprivation, force feeding and threats of rape. Then the CEO of the company behind ChatGPT warns Congress about the dangers of artificial intelligence.
3: I think if this technology goes wrong, it can go quite wrong. Uh, And we want to be vocal about that. We want to work with the government to prevent that from happening.
0: All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The United Nations is warning the next five years are likely to be the warmest on record with far-reaching repercussions for health, food security, water management, and the environment. The U.N.'s World Meteorological Organization said Wednesday heat-trapping greenhouse gases and a naturally occurring El Nino event will combine to make it 98 percent certain that at least one of the next five years will top 2016 as the hottest year on record. And the agency said there's a two-in-three chance that average global surface temperatures will reach 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels for at least one of the next five years. That exceeds the maximum temperature rise set by the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015. This is Petra Thalas, head of the World Meteorological Organization.
4: There's no return back to the good old uh, days uh, because we already have such a high concentration of uh, carbon dioxide and of of course we have also increased the methane concentration in the atmosphere. And uh, the best uh, that that we can do is to to phase out this uh, negative uh, trend.
0: In northern Italy, at least eight people were killed, thousands more forced to evacuate as torrential rains caused rivers to burst their banks, flooding farmlands, leaving tens of thousands without electricity. Some parts of Italy's Emilia-Romagna region received half their average annual rainfall in 36 hours. Burma's government in exile says the death toll from cyclone Mocha has topped 400, with many more missing and unaccounted for. The storm made landfall Sunday with the strength of a Category 5 hurricane, one of the most powerful cyclones to hit the region. Burma's national unity government Wednesday accused the ruling military junta of blocking aid agencies from accessing the hard-hit Rakhine state, following reports that soldiers attacked Rohingya Muslims just before the storm's arrival in London. Climate activists rallied outside the Africa Energy Summit Wednesday, demanding fossil fuel companies, including Shell and Total, drop their support for oil and gas projects in Africa. Protesters say the 900-mile East African crude oil pipeline through Uganda and Tanzania would be the largest, longest pipeline of its kind in the world, emitting 53 million tons of carbon per year, displacing 100,000 people, threatening protected wildlife Life and water resources. This is Rin and Osborne of the People's Health Movement.
5: Total energies and other fossil fuel monsters present at this conference are leaving thousands without livelihoods and homes, fueling war, exacerbating the climate crisis and pushing the country deeper into poverty and crippling debt. This summit
2: must not be normalized.
0: The United Nations says it needs $3 billion in aid as it warns of a spiraling humanitarian disaster in Sudan after more than one month of fighting between the Sudanese army and the paramilitary rapid support forces.
4: The conflict that uh, erupted on the 15th of April last month in Sudan has killed hundreds of people, uh, injured more than 5,000 people, and millions more have been confined to their homes, unable to access basic services and essential health care. And nearly nearly a million people have been displaced, many across to neighbouring countries. Today, 25 million people, more than half the population of Sudan, need humanitarian aid and, and protection.
0: At least three pro-democracy activists were arrested by Sudanese security forces Tuesday as activists say humanitarian aid is being weaponized to gain power amidst a dire need for essentials among the population. West Darfur and the capital Khartoum remain the epicenters of fighting. There have been mounting reports of rape and sexual violence with refugees and internally displaced women and girls particularly vulnerable. There have also been nearly 200 reports of disappearances since the conflict broke out. In Turkey, opposition parties have filed complaints over alleged voting irregularities in Sunday's presidential and parliamentary elections when the incumbent president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, outperformed expectations and claimed nearly half the vote. This follows reports that the Turkish government arrested elected officials and civil society leaders from Spain who traveled to a Kurdish-majority city in eastern Turkey to monitor the vote. The elections heading to a runoff May 28th On Wednesday, Erdogan's opponent, Kamal, Kilic stoked anti-immigrant sentiment and an appeal to Turkish
3: nationalists.
4: I am addressing everybody out there. We did not find this homeland on the street. We will not abandon our homeland to this mentality that allowed 10 million irregular migrants to come live among us.
0: In the United States in Texas, Republican lawmakers have passed a bill banning gender-affirming care for transgender children. It'll also require patients already on transition medications to wean off those treatments. It now heads to the desk of Texas's right-wing governor, Greg Abbott. The Texas State House Wednesday also advanced a bill banning trans college athletes from school sports competitions. Meanwhile, Republicans in Florida stepped up their attacks on transgender rights Wednesday as Governor Ron DeSantis signed a slew of extreme measures into law. They include a ban on transgender people using public restrooms that align with their gender identity and a ban on gender-affirming care for children and most adults with criminal penalties for providers who violate the ban. State courts now have the power to separate trans children from their families if they support transition care. Other legislation bans minor attending events hosted by drag performers and bars transgender and non-binary students and school staff from sharing their preferred pronouns. In other Florida news, publisher Penguin Random House and Penn America are suing the Escambia County School District for banning books on race and LGBTQ issues, citing a violation of the First Amendment. The South Carolina House of Representatives passed a six-week abortion ban. The bill now goes to the state Senate. Earlier this year, the South Carolina Supreme Court struck down a previous six-week ban, but Republicans hope the new effort will be successful as the Supreme Court's lone woman justice has since retired and was replaced with a right-wing male judge. Meanwhile, a federal appeals court appears likely to restrict access to the abortion pill mifepristone, the most commonly used abortion method in the United States. The three conservative judges on the panel, who were appointed by former Presidents Donald Trump and George W. Bush, grilled the Justice Department and drug maker Danko Laboratories over the medication's approval by the FDA over 20 years ago in more recent efforts to expand patient access. This is Justice Department attorney Sarah Harrington being questioned by Judge James. The district court's order is an unprecedented and unjustified attack on FDA scientific expertise. This court should vacate the order because plaintiffs are unlikely to prevail on any of their claims and because the balance of equities tips decidedly against preliminary relief.
6: I, I hate to cut you off so early, but you said unprecedented. We had a challenge to the FDA just yesterday.
0: You had a challenge to the FDA, yes, but I don't think there's ever been any court that has vacated FDA's determination that a drug is safe to be on the market. The Intercept reports U.S. Marshals spied on abortion protesters following the repeal of Roe v. Wade using artificial intelligence AI software from the social media monitoring company Dataminer, which is an official partner of Twitter. Montana's Republican governor has signed legislation banning TikTok, making Montana the first U.S. state to outlaw the popular social media app. The new law forbids app stores like those operated by Apple and Google from making TikTok available for download in Montana with fines of $10,000 a day for violators. Civil liberties groups have promised a legal challenge. Keegan Madrano of the ACLU of Montana said in a statement, with this ban, Governor Gian." And the Montana legislature have trampled on the free speech of hundreds of thousands of Montanans who use the app to express themselves, gather information and run their small business in the name of anti-Chinese sentiment, unquote. In March, the Biden administration threatened to ban TikTok unless its Chinese owners agree to sell their stake in the company. Deutsche Bank has agreed to pay $75 million to survivors of sexual abuse by deceased financier, convicted sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein. The settlement comes as part of a class-action lawsuit against the bank for helping finance Epstein's crimes. In related news, the U.S. Virgin Islands has subpoenaed billionaire Elon Musk as part of its lawsuit against J.P. Morgan Chase over the bank's enabling of Epstein's human trafficking empire in the Virgin Islands, where Epstein owned two islands. The suit does not state any wrongdoing by Musk, but seeks more information on any role Epstein may have played in managing Musk's finances. Ecuador's conservative president Guillermo Lasso has dissolved the opposition-led National Assembly, blocking efforts by lawmakers to impeach him amidst accusations of corruption and embezzlement in a scheme involving a state-owned oil transportation company. The constitutional power, which had never been used in Ecuador before, allows Lasso to rule by decree until new elections can be held. Lasso made the move a day after Ecuador's National Assembly held its first hearing, where Lasso addressed lawmakers and denied involvement in the scheme, which opponents of Lasso say cost Ecuador millions in losses. And in Argentina, thousands of people marched through the streets of Buenos Aires Wednesday, protesting soaring inflation, demanding an end to austerity measures imposed by the International Monetary Fund as part of a $44 billion bailout. Last month, Argentina's government reported that Peso's annual inflation rate soared to 109 percent in a country where 40 percent of the population lives below the poverty line. This is lawmaker Gabriel Solano.
3: Inflation is high. This adds up to the fact that the government sends less money to the soup kitchens. You have an explosive combination. There's no work. Jobs are precarious and not even soup kitchens have the basics.
0: And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now, democracynow.org, the war and peace report. I'm A.B. Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now's Nermeen Sheik. Hi, Nermeen.
5: Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Former
0: New York City mayor and Donald Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani is coming under increasing scrutiny this week after a former associate filed a $10 million lawsuit against him, alleging, quote, unlawful abuses of power, wide-ranging sexual assault and harassment, wage theft and other misconduct, unquote. The suit was filed by Noelle Dunphy, who says Giuliani secretly hired her in 2019 off the books while promising her an annual salary of $1 million. Dunphy says Giuliani repeatedly sexually assaulted her. She also accuses Giuliani of being constantly drunk and making racist, sexist and anti-Semitic comments, many of which were recorded. The lawsuit also alleges Giuliani plotted to sell pardons for $2 million to be split between him and Donald Trump, who would issue the pardons. Giuliani has faced this accusation before. Two years ago, former CIA officer John Kiriakou said an associate of Giuliani offered him a pardon for $2 million— Kiriakou was seeking a pardon for his role in exposing the CIA's torture program. He'd been arrested in 2012, spent nearly two years in prison. Well, John Kiriakou joins us now from Washington, D.C. John, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's good to have you with us. Let's go back so much. to what actually happened. What were you offered and by whom, and where was the offer made?
1: Well, I reached out to an associate of Rudy Giuliani's in uh, in late 2020, after the election, thinking that this would be a good time to uh, try to get to President Trump and ask for a pardon. I was able to get through to one of Giuliani's um, associates or assistants, and he suggested that we meet at the Trump Hotel here in Washington, D.C., uh, the first week of January 2021. Um Interestingly enough, he said that we had to meet at noon because the mayor enjoyed a drink or two or five earlier in the day, and by two o'clock, we wouldn't be able to have much of a conversation. So we met at at, uh, 12 o'clock, rather, at the Trump Hotel. Uh, It was several of us. It was Giuliani, his assistant, a second person, and my attorney and me. And uh, we sat there and made... Idle chit chat for ten minutes and finally I said, So, Mr. Mayor, uh, there's this issue of a pardon. And Giuliani immediately stood up and said he needed to use the men's room and he walked away. And I said to the to the aide, What just happened? And he said, You never talk to Rudy about a pardon. You talk to me about a pardon, and I'll talk to Rudy. I said, Okay, that's fine. And he said, Rudy's gonna want two million dollars. And I laughed and I said, I don't have two million dollars. I'll never have two million dollars. And besides, even if I had two million dollars, I wouldn't spend it to recover a seven hundred thousand dollar pension. And uh, we sat there for a, a moment and I said, look, this isn't going to work out. Thanks for your time. And I got up and I I walked away. And that was the end of the conversation.
5: And how were you ultimately granted a pardon, John? Oh, I wasn't. Um,
1: You know, it's funny. I had uh, some some support in the Trump administration, but only because I was convicted under the Obama administration. Uh, But I I uh, I had approached Giuliani. I had hired a Republican lobbyist. And in the end, nothing came of it.
0: So, John, if you could um, explain if there was any mention uh, now, again, while there are many things in this lawsuit very um explosive lawsuit that were recorded uh because apparently Noel Dumphy says Giuliani wanted things recorded because he was talking about writing a book about himself and uh, wanted a lot of things recorded. Um, this wasn't. And so these allegations that he was going to split the money also told people who wanted this kind of pardon not to go through their regular routes because then it would all be documented and he couldn't take the money. Um, uh So were you told that this would have to be sort of completely off the books and you don't go through the Justice Department? Did you have any indication, Um, because at this point we don't know of any direct connection between him and Donald Trump splitting this, if in fact Trump gave a pardon to you?
1: Frankly, uh, this lawsuit is the first that I had heard that money was supposed to be split with uh, President Trump. I will say that Giuliani's aide told me not to bother going to the website of the Office of the U.S. Pardon Attorney and applying online. He said, we're, we're going to do this quietly, privately, behind uh, the scenes. And I said, that's fine. I know that's the way things work in Washington. So I never applied for the pardon officially, formally, uh, with the Office of the U.S. Pardon Attorney. It was all supposed to be hush hush.
5: And in fact, John, uh, Trump granted very few pardons, uh I don't know if that's just officially through, as you say, the Office of the Pardon Attorney or even through these other means.
1: Well, you know, that's a very interesting uh, thing. Uh, there, there really is a very formal way of applying for a pardon. You go to this website, you fill out the form and you hope for the best. In the meantime, the website routes your application to the FBI The FBI does a background investigation to make sure that you've been rehabilitated. And then uh, it goes to your prosecuting attorneys and to the prosecuting judge for comment. Uh, Now, this is supposed to be independent of the Justice Department. The office of the U.S. pardon attorney is supposed to be attached to the executive office of the president. It's actually not. It physically sits at the Justice Department, which is not the way uh lawmakers on capitol hill had originally intended it uh but as a result almost nobody uh, is recommended for a pardon almost nobody and in the meantime if you want a pardon and you have access to the president that's really how you do it that's not unique or that wasn't unique to donald trump every president does it that way it's kind of one of those ugly little secrets of washington
0: John Caracos spent 14 years at the CIA as an analyst and a case officer. He exposed the Bush-era torture program, was the only official jailed in connection with that torture program, he, for exposing it. Kiriakou was reportedly told he could secure a presidential pardon for Trump uh, from Trump for $2 million. Well, John Kiriakou is going to stay with us. Coming up, a U.N. human rights panel is calling on the United States to finally release Abu Zubaydah, who was repeatedly tortured at CIA black sites and Guantanamo. We're going to speak more with John Kiriakou, who is involved with his capture in 2002, and Will speak with Abu Zubaydah's attorney. Stay with us. Moon, performed by Nico Peoples. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheik. A warning to our audience. This segment contains graphic descriptions and visual descriptions of torture. The United Nations Working Group on Arbitrary Detentions calling on the United States to immediately release Abu Zubaydah, who's been held in U.S. custody since 2002 for more than 20 years. First as a CIA black sites, including in Poland and Lithuania. He was later transferred to Guantanamo, where he's been held without charge. The U.N. body says Abu Zubaydah's ongoing detention may be a crime against humanity. The CIA has been accused of using him as a human guinea pig by testing torture methods on him, including the practice known as waterboarding, which he endured 83 times, and rape under the pretext of rectal feeding. The Center for Policy and Research at Seton Hall University has just published a shocking new report that compiles a series of 40 graphic drawings by Abu Zubaydah that chronicle the horrific torture he endured. The drawings include graphic depictions of waterboarding, force feedings, prisoners being held in boxes, and a practice known as walling, In a moment, we'll be joined by two guests. But first, let's turn to the trailer to Alex Gibney's 2021 documentary, The Forever Prisoner.
4: In 2002, FBI and CIA agents thought they had nabbed a diabolical al-Qaeda mastermind. Abu Zubaydah, has never been charged with a crime. He was imprisoned in the secret CIA unit called Strawberry Fields. As in Forever. Prior to
6: 9-11, the CIA never captured or detained anybody. They weren't prepared. People started looking for who was best to interrogate, and there weren't any.
3: Psychologist James Mitchell was the only candidate considered.
4: I just took it for granted that they knew what they were doing. CIA officers were certain he was holding back because he wasn't
6: telling them what they wanted to hear. Something more aggressive had to be done.
2: The lawyer's philosophy is: "Tell me what you want to do, boss, and I'll make it legal." We asked him to draw what was done to him.
3: Abu Zubaydah is put in isolation. Everything that was happening was Mitchell's experiment. Nudity has been approved. Sleep deprivation has been approved. Noise has been approved. The same songs, again and again and again.
6: Spent 11 days in a coffin-shaped box. He was on the waterboard.
3: I mean, this is crazy.
2: The best evidence of what happened is the video. What was the reason why you thought that it was important to have the tapes destroyed? I needed to protect the
6: people who were there. Destroying evidence would inevitably lead to accusations of a
3: cover-up. It would make the CIA look bad. It was an impossible story to tell, so I sued the CIA to get materials unredacted. We
6: saw constant manipulation by the CIA, misleading Bush, misleading Obama. If my boss
1: tells me it's legal, if the president approved it, I'm not going to get into what some journalist thinks about
2: it.
3: In America, we have this thing called innocent until proven guilty. We were
2: the leaders of the effort against cruel and unusual punishment. After 9-11, that's out the window. The ends always justify the
4: means. Are we prepared to abandon our principles in order to defend them?
0: That was the trailer for Alex Gibney's 2021 documentary, The Forever Prisoner. We're joined now by two guests. Still with us, CIA whistleblower John Kiriakou, who was involved in the capture of Abu Zubaydah. Kiriakou was later jailed for almost two years for revealing that the CIA had waterboarded him. We're also joined by one of Abu Zubaydah's lawyers, Mark Denbo. He is a professor at Seton Hall University School of Law and director of its Center for Policy and Research, co-author of the news report, American Torturers, FBI and CIA Abuses at Dark Sites and Guantanamo. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! John Kiriakou, I want to continue with you. Talk about how Abu Zubaydah was caught— and where you were, how you were involved with his capture.
1: Sure. Uh, Abu Zubaydah was captured in Faisalabad, Pakistan, in late March 2002. I happened to be uh, the chief of CIA counterterrorism operations in Pakistan at the time, and we had been looking for Abu Zubaydah for about six weeks. We finally were able to narrow down his possible location to one of 13 sites we hit all 13 sites simultaneously at two o'clock in the morning and uh and he happened to be in one of those sites i was at a safe house nearby in uh radio contact with all of our officers who were at the site and when i say our officers i mean they were teams of cia fbi and pakistani intelligence officers uh abu zubeda was was shot uh when he was when he was trying to leap from the roof of one house to the roof of another to to get away. Um, After after specifically being told not to fire any shots, a Pakistani policeman shot him anyway and nearly killed him. He was hit three times with an AK-47. We rushed him to a hospital in Faisalabad. They were able to staunch the bleeding as best they could. And then we put him on a helicopter and sent him to a Pakistani military base. He was there for, um, I think it was 56 hours in the end, and then put on a, on an unmarked CIA plane and, and taken to the first of several black sites.
5: John, what were you told about why you had to find this man? You said the search went on for six weeks. What did the CIA say uh, they thought he was uh, responsible for?
1: I'm smiling because that is such an important question. What we were told in the very beginning was that Abu Zubaydah was one of the most dangerous and most violent men on the planet, that he was the number three in al-Qaeda. He was one of the masterminds of the 9-11 attacks. And in the end, none of that was true. None of it. Uh, The information that we were getting from CIA headquarters from NSA, from the FBI, it was all erroneous. And so we thought that this was this terrorist Superman that we were after. We literally dropped everything else that we were doing in Pakistan and we dedicated a a virtual army of of men and women to tracking his location. Uh, But in the end, none of what we believed uh, had any truth behind it.
5: And Then where was he taken? You said he was uh, taken in an unmarked plane out of Pakistan after being uh, in this military hospital. Uh, where did he go? I mean, just trace his journey. He went to several black sites. And what do you know about what happened at these black sites?
1: I am sorry to say that 20 years after the fact, the CIA has never publicly admitted or declassified uh, the locations of those black sites. I'll defer to Mark um, on the specific answer, but I will say that the locations of these various sites have been reported on extensively in the media. I just can't confirm it.
0: And uh, before we go uh, to uh, Mr. Dembo um, to talk about not only where he was taken, but these unbelievably horrifying Mm -hmm. illustrations of Abu Zubaydah, Um, talk about how you— came to be aware of what was happening to him and you were responsible for his capture Um, and why you decided to go to the media with that, which ultimately led to you being imprisoned. Well, you know, I'm a firm believer
1: in a couple of things. I'm a firm believer in respect for human rights and I'm a firm believer in the rule of law. And if the United States as a government, as a society and culture is going to go around the world and impose our professed beliefs on human rights upon every other country in the world, if we are going to have anti-torture laws in our country, if we're going to be not just signatories to, but but the drafters of the United Nations Convention Against Torture, then by God, we have to live by those words right? We have to take that seriously. We're either going to be a shining beacon for the rest of the world on human rights and civil rights and civil liberties, or we're not. We can't be both. We can't tell other countries to respect civil rights and then ignore or human rights and then ignore human rights when it's inconvenient for us to respect them. Um, Abu Zubaydah, I think, is the, is the poster boy for that. Uh, here's, a, here's a man who we were just simply wrong about. We, we savaged him in secret. We denied him his constitutional rights to confront his accusers in a court of law. We never charged him with a crime. We know from the Senate torture report that the plan was for him to just die in custody, and then we would cremate him and throw his ashes into the sea. Well, where's the legal justification, or frankly, the moral justification, for any of that? Abu Zubaydah, if he was not going to be charged with a crime, should have been released years ago, decades ago. And here we are, 21 years later, and he's still imprisoned.
5: Mark Denbo, you are one of the attorneys uh, representing Abu Zubaydah, and you've just released a report uh, titled "American Torturers: FBI and CIA Abuses at Dark Sites and Guantanamo." Explain what's in that report.
2: Okay, that report was based exclusively on the drawings that Abu Zubaydah made of uh, the examples of the torture he endured as well as, and this is significant, his descriptions of each of those events. And the descriptions are something that's really never been seen or heard, because they're the descriptions of the torture victim describing the effect of each torture technique. Now, as to the significance of the drawing, one reason they're so significant is it is fully recognized that the CIA had 92 videotapes of his torture. And it's also recognized that a federal judge ordered the CIA to preserve those for purposes of litigation that would be followed. It's also undisputed that the CIA knowingly destroyed those tapes in order, as your the trailer indicated, it would be hide the people, protect the people who engaged in that torture. So there's no visual evidence of what they did to Abu Zubaydah. There's only the sanitized descriptions of what types of techniques could be used, most of which were not used the way they would sound. And these drawings are the only source of the application of the torture techniques approved by America's torture program, and they're done by Abu Zubaydah. And he is, of course, the first person the U.S. chose to torture. And the U.S. torture techniques were approved solely to torture him, Even though they fully knew he did not and was not uh, appropriately, he didn't warrant any detention. I mean, obviously, the cynical thing is before the CIA advised the the Department of Justice why he should be tortured, the CIA's reasons had already been um, learned by the FBI, and the FBI formally told the CIA, none of these facts are true, and whatever you're saying is false. And they proceeded anyway.
0: I want to turn to another clip from The Forever Prisoner of James Mitchell, the retired Air Force psychologist who is the chief architect of the CIA's torture program. You remember Mitchell and Jessen, the two psychologists? It starts with FBI agent Ali Sufan.
3: You call this guy Boris. Is Boris his real name? No. I cannot talk about uh, about him, and I cannot even mention his real name. This is Boris. His real name is James Mitchell. He also wrote a book about the interrogation of Abu Zubaydah. But Mitchell's book had the full cooperation of the CIA. Because Mitchell was the inventor of EITs, the acronym for what the CIA called Enhanced Interrogation Techniques, and what the rest of the world called Torture. If my boss tells me it's legal, especially if the
4: president has approved it, I'm not going to get into the nuances about what some guy in the basement or what some journalist thinks about it, because they're free to trade places with me any time they think they can do a better job of protecting Americans.
0: Again, that's James Mitchell, the retired Air Force um, psychologist uh, who helped to design the torture program. Uh, Mark Dembo, if you can talk about um, his role and the role of the American Psychological Association, a very sordid, dark chapter of the largest association of psychologists in the world, and uh, how this actually uh, was implemented. And, used against Abu Zubaydah. And then describe in detail—we also have a radio audience—the illustrations that have rarely been shown that we are showing today.
2: Okay, let me start with James Mitchell's claim justifying why he did it. First of all, James Mitchell was hired by the CIA four days after Abu Zubaydah was captured. And the cia had determined that they didn't want the FBI or the Defense Department interrogating Abu Zubaydah. They wanted to keep control of him. Then they hired Mitchell. People asked, why are you hiring somebody in order to do this interrogation? And the CIA director said, or deputy director, we are in uncharted waters. We've never done this before. Then Mitchell invented the techniques that he wanted to use, claiming they would work. And after he had the techniques approved, then they needed somebody to torture, and they created a person to justify torturing him, and that was Abu Zubaydah. And that's because he was the only human being they had captured, the CIA had captured, he was also the only human being that they had available to torture, and they created a fictitious person described previously as an al-Qaeda representative, a leader, and so on, and passed that on to the Department of Justice. Department of Justice said we're giving permission to torture him, assuming these facts are true. In fact, the CIA knew they weren't true. And as I said earlier, had been told by the FBI that they weren't true. So <clears throat> Mitchell, in fact, invented the psychological assessment of Abu Zubaydah. That leads us into the Mitchell relationship and also the American Psychological Association. The only document ever presented to the Department of Justice to justify torturing Abu Zubaydah was called a psychological assessment. This was obviously designed by psychologists, but the one thing missing from the psychological assessment is an assessment. You'd think they'd be talking about the impact of it, how harmful it would be, how it might work, the dangers, and so on. All it does is list 13 salacious facts that are dripping with gore all untrue, to give to the Department of Justice. So the Department of Justice was duped into believing they really had the mastermind of 9-11, they had the number two al-Qaeda person, he'd been coordinating worldwide interrogation, uh, uh, terrorist programs, and a series of other things. Every single one of those was false. And every single one of them was determined to be false, including by the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. So Mitchell fabricated all of the facts designed to justify torturing him. And bear in mind, he had been interrogated and tortured by Mitchell for five months before they gave the CIA, the Department of Justice, this fake description of him. So he invented and fabricated all the facts that allowed them to torture somebody who is now absolutely agreed to offend, not any of the bad things that were said about him. Now, about the the drawings, (laughs) first of all, the drawings are really quite gruesome. And, in fact, quite a few American news media have not been willing to publish the report of the drawings because they're simply too disgusting. I agree they're disgusting, but, of course, I think that's exactly why they should be published. Okay, among the drawings, first of all, keep in mind that nowhere did the Department of Justice say you could keep people totally nude for weeks, months, and maybe years at a time. That's the duration of some of these things is another abuse. For instance, another thing is when they were talking about um, um, anal rape, there's a discussion in there of fake anal rape with him bending over on his hands and knees, and they have a broomstick uh, pointing to or touching his anus or near his anus. That's there. And there guards sitting watching them. <clears> then <throat> as you go through some of the waterboarding, they would put him in a water shaped, a coffin shaped box, lying down with his hands handcuffed, the water up to his nose, and they would sit there and watch him and then ask and, and keep track of him. And then when he would go under, they'd push him under, they would bring him up. That could go on for hours and days. One of the things about these drawings is they do not show the duration of the torture. For instance, the CIA cables show for 17 straight days, they cycled through each one of these techniques. The walling, the waterboarding, the confined spaces, the the, the detention hands and knees locked together so they can't move, um, the nudity, all of the other things, including hitting. And walling. You mentioned walling. Walling turns out to be probably the most physically damaging of all the torture. Because they have a man standing right near a very solid wall, about 18 inches away, with his heels kept from moving, handcuffed. And then they stand there interviewing him and asking him questions, supposedly. And then every once in a while they reach up and slam him back so his body goes back and his head hits the wall. And they will do that over and over and over. And what they would end up doing is, they would do that for quite a few while. Then they'd have him stand nude in a room with cold room and spray water on him for a long period of time. Then they would put him in a very small box, the size of a box where you could only have your knees together, your ankles together, like a catcher in baseball with their hands, feet, and needles all stuck together in that box in the dark for an unknown amount of time. Now, of course, the detainee has no clock, no calendar, no days. They don't know how long they're in there. Then they would bring them out and they would then put them in a larger box. Sometimes they would have them in a larger box and they would rock the box back and forth while he's there in the dark knowing what's happening. And throughout all this time, of course, there was not only the nudity, but loud music, and they were also threatening to to desecrate the Koran as a drawing showing that. But ultimately, the drawings are simply a picture of, if these were the approved torture techniques, and they were all approved in a sense, then you have the people who are engaging in it being like freelancers, going off and trying to invent other ways to make it work. Nowhere did the produce say you should take a rape, an anal rape with a broomstick. That was their invention. Mitchell gets credit for that one. And the same thing happened when they were talking about keeping him in the water for Hours and hours and hours. As he complains, he was in there so long, he couldn't protect himself. And so his body waste ended up, he was in water with his body waste, with his hands and feet um, shackled with just his nose out of it for an indefinite period of time. So people have to look at all these pictures. And well, this is maybe the only place where anybody will ever get to see them. They won't get to see the CIA draw video.
0: I want to thank you very much for being with us, Mark Dembo. And I want to end with one final quick question um, to John Kiriakou. You went to jail for 23 months. Would you do it again to expose what happened to Abu Zubaydah going to the media and revealing this?
1: In a heartbeat, I would do it again today. And I'll tell you the truth, Amy, my only regret is that I didn't uh, go far enough. Uh, all those years ago. I should have been more clear. I should have ignored nuance. I should have just come out with everything. I would do it again in a heartbeat.
0: John Kiriakou, CIA torture program whistleblower, worked at the CIA for over a decade. Mark Denbo, lawyer for Abu Zubaydah, Seton Hall professor. We'll link to your new report, American Torturers, FBI and CIA Abuses at Dark Sites and Guantanamo. Coming up, the CEO of the company behind Chat GBT warns Congress about the dangers of artificial intelligence. Stay with us. <laughs>
6: Yo dil ger ger soda ahl bil ab kuntu da kasnd
0: Prominent Sudanese singer Shaden Gardoud was killed in crossfire between the Sudanese army and the paramilitary rapid support forces in Amdurman city Friday, despite an agreement between the two warring sides to protect the civilians. Hundreds and hundreds of civilians have died. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nurmin Sheik. As more of the public becomes aware of artificial intelligence, or AI, the Senate held a hearing Tuesday on how to regulate it. Senate Judiciary Subcommittee Chair Richard Blumenthal opened the hearing with an AI-generated recording of his own voice, what some call a deep fake.
6: And now— Uh, for some introductory remarks. Too often, we have seen what happens when technology outpaces regulation. The unbridled exploitation of personal data, the proliferation of disinformation, and the deepening of societal inequalities. We have seen how algorithmic biases can perpetuate discrimination and prejudice and how the lack of transparency can undermine public trust. This is not the future we want. If you were listening from home, you might have thought that voice was mine and the words from me. But in fact, that voice was not mine. The words were not mine. And the audio was an AI voice cloning software trained on my floor speeches, the remarks were written by ChatGPT when it was asked how I would open this hearing.
0: Google, Microsoft and OpenAI, the startup behind ChatGPT, are some of the companies creating increasingly powerful artificial intelligence technology. OpenAI CEO Sam Altman testified at Tuesday's hearing and warned about its dangers.
3: I think if this technology goes wrong, it can go quite wrong, uh, and we want to be vocal about that. We want to work with the government to prevent that from happening, but we we try to be very clear-eyed about what the downside case is and the work that we have to do to mitigate that. It's it's one of my areas of greatest concern: the the the, the more general ability of these models to manipulate, and to persuade, uh, to provide sort of one-on-one, uh, you know, interactive disinformation. We are quite concerned about the impact this can have on elections. I think this is an area where hopefully the entire industry and the government can work together quickly.
0: This all comes as the United States has lagged on regulating AI compared to the European Union and China. For more, we're joined by Mark Rotenberg, Executive Director of the Center for AI and Digital Policy. Mark, welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Now, it's very significant that you have this AI CEO saying, please regulate us. But in fact, isn't he doing it because he wants corporations to be involved with the regulation? Talk about that and also just what AI? is for people who just don't understand what this is all about?
4: Well, Amy, first of all, thank you for having me on the program. And secondly, just to take a step back, Sam Altman received a lot of attention this week when he testified in Congress. But I think it's very important to make clear at the beginning of our discussion that civil society organizations, experts in AI uh, technology developers— have been saying for many, many years there's a problem here. And I think it's vitally important at this point in the policy discussion that we recognize that these views have been expressed by people like Timnet Gebru and Stuart Russell and Margaret Mitchell and the president of my own organization, Merva Highcock, who testified in early March before the House Oversight Committee that we simply don't have the safeguards in place, we don't have the legal rules, we don't have the expertise in government for the rapid technological change that's now taking place. So while we welcome uh, Mr. Altman's uh, support for what we hope will be a strong legislation, uh, we do not think he should be the center of attention in this political discussion. Now, to your point, what is AI about and and why is there so much uh, focus? Uh, Part of this is about a very rapid change taking place in the technology and in the tech industry that many people simply didn't see happening as it did. We've known problems with AI for many, many years. Uh, We have automated decisions today widely deployed across our country, that make decisions about people's opportunities for education, for credit, for employment, for housing, for probation, even for entering the country. All of this is being done by automated systems that increasingly rely on statistical techniques. And these statistical techniques make decisions about people that are oftentimes opaque and can't be proven. And so you actually have a situation where big federal agencies and big companies make determinations, and if you went back and said, well, like, why was I denied uh, that loan? Or why is my visa application taking so many years? The organizations themselves don't have good answers. So that was reflected in part with Altman's testimony this week. He is on the front lines— of a new AI technique that's referred to generally as generative AI. It produces uh, synthetic information. And if I could make a clarification uh, to your opening about Senator Blumenthal's uh, remarks, those actually were not a recording, which is a very familiar term for us. It's what we think of when we hear someone's voice being played back. That was actually synthetically generated by Senator Blumenthal's prior statements, and that's where we see the connection to such concepts as deep fakes. This doesn't exist in reality, but for the fact that an AI system created it. We have an enormous challenge at this moment to try to regulate this new type of AI as well as the pre-existing systems that are making decisions about people oftentimes embedding bias, replicating a lot of the social discrimination in our physical world, now being carried forward in these data sets to our digital world, and we need the legislation that will establish the necessary guardrails.
5: Mark Rotenberg, can you uh, elaborate uh, on the fact that so many uh, artificial intelligence researchers themselves uh, are worried about what uh, artificial intelligence can lead to? Uh, A recent survey showed that half, 50 percent of AI researchers give AI at least a 10 percent chance of causing human extinction. Could you talk about that?
4: Yes. So, absolutely. And actually, I was— you know, one of the people who who signed that letter that, that was circulated um, earlier this year was a controversial letter, by the way, because it tended to focus on the long-term existential risks, and it included, you know, such concerns as losing control over these systems that are now being developed. There's another uh, group in the AI community that I think very rightly said about the existential concerns, that we also need to focus on the immediate concerns. And I spoke, for example, a moment ago about embedded bias and replicating discrimination. That's happening right now, and that's a problem that needs to be addressed right now. Now, my own view, which is not necessarily the view of everyone else, is that both of these groups are sending powerful warnings about where we are, I do believe that the groups that are saying we have a risk of a loss of control, which includes many eminent uh, computer scientists who have won the Turing Award, which is like the Nobel Prize for Computer Science, I think they're right. I think there's a real risk of loss of control. But I also agree with the people, you know, at the AI Now uh, Institute and the Distributed AI Research Institute that we have to solve the problems with the systems that are, that are already deployed. And this is also the reason that I was frankly very happy about, about the Senate hearing this week. It was a very good hearing. There were very good discussions. Uh, I felt that the members of the committee uh, came well prepared. They asked uh, good questions. Uh, There was a lot of discussion about concrete proposals, transparency obligations, uh, privacy safeguards, uh, limits on on, on compute and AI capability. And I very much uh, supported what Senator Blumenthal said at, at the outset. You know, he said we need to build in rules for transparency, for accountability, and we need to establish some limits on use. I thought that was an excellent place to start a discussion in the United States about how to establish uh, safeguards for the use of artificial intelligence.
5: And Mark Wurtenberg, what are the uh, benefits that people talk about with respect to artificial intelligence? And given the rate, as you said, uh, at which it's uh, spreading these rapid technological advances, is there any way to arrest it at this point?
4: well there's no question that that AI I mean broadly speaking and it's you know of course it is a broad term uh, and and you know even the experts of course don't even agree precisely on, on on what we're referring to but let's say AI broadly speaking you know is is contributing to innovation in, in the medical field for example uh, big breakthroughs with with protein folding uh, it's contributing to efficiency and administration of organizations better ways to identify uh, uh, safety flaws in, in, in products and um, transportation. I, I think there's no uh, dispute. I mean, it's a little bit like talking about fire or electricity. Uh, it, it's one of these uh, uh, foundational uh, resources in the digital age that is uh, widely deployed. But as with fire or electricity... We understand that to maintain, to obtain the benefits, you know, you also need to put in some safeguards and some limits. And you see, we're actually in a moment right now where the AI techniques are being broadly deployed with hardly any safeguards or limits. And that's why so many people in the AI community are worried. It's not that they don't see the benefits. It's that they see the risks if we continue down this path.
0: Well, we want to talk about what those safeguards need to be and dig further into how it is that artificial intelligence could lead to the extinction of humans on Earth. We're talking to Mark Rotenberg, Executive Director of the Center for AI and Digital Policy. We'll do part two. Put it online at democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh.